If you would, let's turn to Acts chapter 9. Our sermon text will be Acts chapter 9, and then we'll move to other texts. But Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and through his eyes, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray for a second. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear the word read and hear it preached. When we pray that your Holy Spirit might accompany the preaching of your word now and bless our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I was talking, one of my, my daughters had a friend over from Atlanta, Georgia. I think that's right, Atlanta. Is Atlanta? Close. Um, and she, she sees me every morning when she gets up. She would go outside in the backyard and read her Bible. And she, she would see me and she'd say, she always called me Mr. Mark. She said, Mr. Mark, what are you reading or what are you thinking about these days? And I said, well, Rachel... Um, I am thinking about how to read my Bible better. And uh, I am studying about how to think about what I am reading and hopefully see some things that I've never seen before. And one of the things that uh, is has been on my mind for years is Acts chapter 9, among other things. You know, you file these things away in your head. You think about these things for 10 or 15 years. And uh, in my case, I get to preach them. Um, so when you come to Acts chapter 9, you know this is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And I don't know about you, but this has been my experience. Ever since I was a kid, this is what I've heard, and I'm going to give you a little outline. But what I have always heard is Saul saw a light. Saul heard a voice. Saul made a choice, and now he turns from from persecuting Jesus Christ and all those in the way of Jesus Christ, he turns on a dime and he starts preaching. And I've been thinking to myself, oh, really? Is that how it works? Are people zapped into the kingdom of God? Do people, I read a book years and years ago where these two men, they said these two men are walking around a football stadium while people inside the stadium are preaching the gospel. These men don't know anything about Jesus Christ, but they fall on their face and now they're Christians. Really? Is that how it works? Does Saul of Tarsus, does he, is he just zapped into the kingdom? My question this morning is, is that? Is, are we zapped into the kingdom? Is anyone zapped into the kingdom? 
Or is there a backstory? Is there something that's going on before we get to Acts chapter 9? Even recently I read, and I won't say his name, but I read somebody that if I said his name, you'd know it. And he said, yeah, you know, most of us don't have sudden flash experiences like Acts chapter 9. Most of us don't come to Christ in this way. And I was thinking, do any of us come to Christ in this way? Isn't there a backstory? I mean, folks, listen, and I'm not going to get into Acts chapter 9 today. I'm going to get into it next week. But even if you just read Acts chapter 9, verse 9, it says, And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. I mean, folks, listen, he's not a Christian yet. He's under conviction of sin. He's under condemnation. He is blind. That means he's judged. He is blind. He's under conviction of his sin. Yes, we hear as we read, he's a chosen instrument of God to go and preach to the Gentiles. But will a man be called and commissioned to preach the gospel by Jesus Christ who's never been preached to himself? Will somebody go and preach the gospel who's never heard the call of the gospel himself? Later on at the end of Acts chapter, this part right here, Acts chapter 9, right before it starts talking about Peter, we have this, this afraid man named Ananias who comes to Saul and tells him to call on the name of the Lord. Then he's saved. Now he's saved. So there's a story before the story we read here. There's a back story. And let me just put it in short. No zapping. There's no zapping. Everybody's got a backstory, And then everybody has a story. And this is true of every single person. Before there's an Apostle Paul, there's a Saul of Tarsus. And before there's an Apostle Peter, there's a Simon son of John. And before there's a Matthew, uh, the gospel writer, there's a Matthew, the tax collector. Before there's a woman in Luke chapter 7 who loves much Jesus much and is because she's forgiven much, there's a woman in Luke chapter 7 who's just known for her sin. And before there's Timothy, the preacher, Paul's protege, there's Timothy, the son of a mom and a grand, grandmom. All of this is true of all of us. And so what I want to do today and in the next few weeks is move through eventually get back to the Apostle Paul. But today what I want to do is look at four conversion experiences. I want us to learn to read our Bibles better. I want us to ask the question, what is my backstory? I want, to ask, I want us to ask the question, what is my story? I want us to ask the question, do I have a, am I in the middle of having a story? Is Jesus Christ calling me to Himself today, even as we hear these different accounts of conversions to Jesus Christ. The first one I want to give to you is this. I want you to consider Simon Peter. Now, all of us know Simon Peter. If you've been to church, you know Simon Peter. But what is his backstory? Simon Peter, he makes two of the greatest confessions in all of the New Testament. He says in, in Matthew 16, he says, Thou art the Christ, King James Version, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in John chapter 6, when everybody's turning and walking away from Jesus, Jesus says, well, will you not also go away? And he says, to whom shall we go, Lord? You are the only one who has the words of eternal life. But what is his backstory? Well, let's begin in John chapter 1. So John the Baptist, he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he points this out to Andrew and John. 
And so Andrew and John begin to follow Jesus and they spend the better part of the day with Jesus. And then Andrew and John go to each one their own brothers. John goes to James and Andrew goes to Simon, his brother, and introduces the idea to him that Jesus, we have found the Messiah. And so Andrew is known as the great uh, disciple who introduces people to Jesus. He goes and brings Simon to Jesus And Jesus looks at Simon and he says this, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter or what? Rock. Jesus identifies him as a natural man. But Jesus is telling him right off the bat, I'm going to make you something that you are not. I'm going to make you into a rock. But it all starts with someone introducing Simon, son of John, to Jesus, and that is Andrew. And then after that, it takes Jesus pouring the truth into Simon so that he might come to make these professions of faith that we've just talked about. And so in Luke chapter 5, you remember that Jesus is on the shore and he's preaching on the shore and it's probably a little bit tight, a lot of people maybe even pressing close into him. And he goes over to his now friend, Simon, son of John, and says, let's get in your boat, push out a little bit from the shore, I'll preach from the from the boat. And so everybody, he's a little bit less pressure, and I'm sure the, the, the water and the audience, it's easy for the sound to go across the water. We know how that works if you've ever been on a lake. You, know, you can speak on the lake and you can hear people over there in their boat eating and drinking and all of the other. And so Jesus is preaching, and then Jesus gets hungry. He tells Simon Peter, he says, let me tell Simon, he says, let's go out, take the boat out into a little bit deeper water, drop your nets. And, and this is where he says, hey, now, the Lord, look, I know you're the master preacher. I know you're the master teacher, but uh, I'm the master fisherman. We fished all night. We haven't caught anything, but according to your word, I'll do it. They go out and they drop the net in the water and the nets begin to break. The boat begins to sink, and we don't find Peter helping them get the fish in the boat. We find Peter face down in the boat. We find him kissing a boat that's got fishy stuff on on it, if you're with me. And he is saying, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. So here we have a man who's face to face with Jesus' teaching and face to face with Jesus' glory. He realizes that he know, that Jesus knew those fish were there. And then later on, Jesus comes walking across the water and Peter looks at Jesus walking across the water in that storm and says, Lord, if it's, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he tells him, he says, well, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat. Now, Mr. Master Fisherman, he knows he can't walk on the water, but with Jesus, if he fixes his eyes on Jesus, he can do anything, can he? So he begins to walk across the water, the wind and the waves and all the rest. And he's walking across the water. Then he looks down, keeps his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink. And here's a little I'm going to say every time I say this, I always say the same thing for the last 20 years. I say the same thing. He said, Lord, save me when he was six inches deep, not 600 feet deep. With me, that's a little side note. Don't wait to come see a friend. Don't wait to begin to pray. Don't wait to come see the session when you're 600 feet deep. Start talking to people when you're six inches deep. All right, that's a little side note. So he begins to cry out, the Lord saves, and he saves him, and they get back in the boat together. We see a man who's repenting of his sin. We see a man putting his eyes on Jesus Christ. 
And then a little bit later, Jesus asked all the disciples, who do men say that I am? And he and, and all the rest give the contemporary views. He turns the question on them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter stands up and says for all of them, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells them this, blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then he says this, I also say to you that you are Peter, you are the rock. Now he calls him the rock. He's got him. He's here. We have a man repenting of his sins. Depart from me, Lord. And the Lord doesn't. Doesn't leave him because he wants to take him and make him a fisher of men. We have a man who's fixing his eyes on Jesus and he walks on the water. And we have a man who's confessing his faith in Jesus Christ. This is what's a real by God's grace. Well, what do we learn from the backstory? What do we learn from the story? From Peter's backstory, let me tell you what we learn. This is really short. No Andrew, no Simon Peter. No, in, no person introducing Simon, son of John, to Jesus. No, Simon Peter, just Simon, son of John. What we learn is this. There's no, somebody, somebody, mom, somebody has to introduce us to Jesus Christ. Somebody had to put a Bible in a Holiday Inn where you picked it up and all of a sudden you're introduced to, to Jesus Christ. Mom, dad, Somebody at work, somebody passing out a track. Somebody has to be Andrew in your life. We also learn from the narrative or from the story that somebody has to pour the gospel of Jesus Christ into us. Now, in Simon Peter's case, in Simon, son of John's case, it was Jesus himself. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. So he's not going to be doing any personal pouring into somebody's ear right now. It's going to have to be, maybe it was Andrew, if Andrew was the one. But it wasn't Andrew in this case. It was Jesus. But if your mom introduces you to Jesus Christ, and then she's the one that begins to pour it all into you. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But somebody has to do the pouring. Somebody has to do the teaching. Somebody has to tell you of the facts about Jesus. It, they don't have to know every single fact about Jesus, but they do need to tell you some things. Let me tell you a few of those things. If you're the one doing the teaching or if you're the one being taught, you must teach or be taught that Jesus is a man. This text we talked about, Jesus is in a boat. Jesus is on the shore. Jesus gets in a boat. Jesus doesn't go float on the water. Jesus doesn't float up in the air. Jesus is a man. He gets into the boat. He teaches and preaches from the boat. In fact, he gets hungry. He wants a fish dinner. Not only is Jesus a man, you must also be taught that this man is not only has a true human body and a reasonable soul, but he's also God. He told Peter to go fish out in the deeper water because he created the fish. He knows where the fish are. And that's something that we all need to be taught. We all need to be taught that Jesus is God in human flesh. So Jesus is man. Jesus is God. We have to be shown also that Jesus is glorious, the, the, the glorious God man. And so we see Jesus walking across the water. But when Jesus is walking across the water, it's a stormy sea. And He's the one who walks across the waves. He walks on the waves of God's wrath. He goes through the wrath of God for us on the cross for our sins so that you and I might not have to be under His wrath forever. And finally, what do we learn from the narrative? We learn 
that when a person sees the glory of the God-man, what do they do? They fall on their faces. They say, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. They, they say, Lord, save me. Take the very words we use in his life. Lord, depart from me, repentance. Lord, save me, fixing his eyes on Jesus. Then what does he do? He tells everybody about him. Thou art the Christ. And I'm telling you, I know this. And Jesus says, you know this because of God's grace. The Father revealed this to you. These are the things we learn from this conversion of Simon, son of John, to Simon Peter. Now, the second conversion I want to show you is Matthew, the tax collector. And if you want to know where this is, it's in Matthew 9, 9 through 10. And, it, you know, if I read all the text to you, we could spend an hour doing this, but I'm, I'm going to tell you the stories rather than read them to you, okay? But the text reads like this. Jesus walks up to Matthew, the tax collector, and says, follow me. And what we see is he just drops everything and he follows Jesus. And so my question to you is, based on my sermon, well, does anybody just stop doing what they're doing and follow a stranger? Is anybody zapped into the kingdom? What's the backstory? Because you see, I don't think anyone ever does anything a stranger tells them to do on the dot. Nobody gives a man permission to use his boat unless he knows him. And nobody goes out and falls on the bottom of the, the boat and repents of his sins unless he knows him. Unless he's seen the fish. Unless he's seen him walk on the water. You've got to know some things. And so the point is, I don't, don't believe that this tax collector would ever walk away from Rome, ever walk away from all his money, ever walk away from his life as it has been apart from knowing something about Jesus. So my question is this, how many times has Jesus passed by Matthew's tax booth? We're not told. We're not told. But don't think that he ever stopped what he was doing without knowing something about him. Surely, possibly Jesus walked by the tax booth and paid taxes to Matthew. More than likely, Matthew met Jesus' disciples. More than likely, Matthew had heard some sermons. And then he heard, follow me. Nobody. This man was wealthy. This man was extorting money from his own people and making a lot of money. He had padded pockets. Nobody does this unless they know a little something. This has to be the backstory. And so Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And it's a command to convert. It's a command to turn around from your life that you're living and live a brand new life. Fix your eyes on me and follow me. And it's a powerful command that comes to him when he says, follow me. There's power in that command. You know, Augustine, it, a lot of times people like to quote Augustine. I love this quote from Augustine. He says, Lord, give what you command. Jesus says, follow me. And with those words, the power is granted to do what he's commanding us to do. You and I are to come and we are to obey him. We are to trust that with those words come power. If you go back and look at the story about the paralytic, Jesus tells the paralytic his sins are forgiven. This is something that no one can see. I, if... if, if um, <laughs> If Randy says, Mark, I forgive you of your sins, nobody can see that. We just, you have to just go, well, I guess Randy's forgiven Mark of his sins. But if Randy 
makes me who's laying down on the ground and can't walk, if he makes me stand up and walk, you might realize that he probably did the first thing too. Jesus says, sir, your sins are forgiven. And he says, so that you might know that those sins are forgiven, I'm going to tell you to rise up and walk. And the same thing's true here. Jesus tells him to follow me and he does it. Something internal took place. There was this effectual power that worked in his life and now he leaves the booth. He leaves his life of extortion. He leaves it all. He leaves Rome, all the money, and now he turns to Jesus. All of these things, is, it's wonderful. And then there's one more little side note. I'll throw this in and we'll move on. He's not an Eeyore when he comes to Christ. He doesn't go, well, I've got to go follow Jesus now. And that means no more money and no more fun. It's not what he does. Right? No, you know what he does? He invites all, he invites all his friends to his house. And then he invites all his new friends to his house, Jesus and the disciples. And they have a big party out with the old life, in with the new. What do we learn from the backstory? Here's what we learn. How many times in your life, how many times did it take for you to hear the gospel over and over and over until you confessed your faith in Christ? How many times? How many times? How many sermons? There's people who, I think Charles Spurgeon added up how many sermons he literally had heard before he came to Christ. It was in the thousands. For many years, I was in a gym and, you know, when you're in a gym with guys that are Mr. America and Mr. Southwest Texas and all these different things, um, and you train with them, I'm, I'm not as big as I was. Matt, Matt's not as big as he used to be either. <laughs> but when you're with these guys, you train every day. You don't talk a lot, but you train. You sweat and you train and you lift weights. And I'm with these guys every day. For several years, they all knew that I was a minister and they all knew that I would talk to them about Christ. And one day, one of them started talking to me about Christ on Wednesday. They'd see me in the, on in Wednesday. I would go and sit down and I'd start writing sermons. And this guy, he started getting in the way of my sermon prep. But I didn't mind and he asked me, he says, well, what should I read if I start reading the Bible? I told him to read the book of John. So will this start, I, I'm not thinking anything about this. Well, then he came the next week on Wednesday and he did the same thing. Let's talk about what I read. Then he came again the next week. It's three weeks in. I'm telling Lori, I said, something's going on. So four weeks later, five weeks later, he asked me, he says, I need to understand what I'm reading better. Is there something I can buy to help me understand uh, how I can you know, read the Bible better? And I said, well, go get yourself the new Bible commentary which is a commentary on the whole Bible in one book. And it will help you. So he goes out and he buys a commentary. And so he's reading this and talking to me. And then about eight or nine weeks into this, he sits down with me on Wednesday. He says, tomorrow I want you to go across the street and I want you to, to, to uh, talk to me from Genesis as far as you can get while I eat my salad that's got so much meat on top of it and so forth. And so I sat down with him for 75 minutes and I began to talk to him about Jesus Christ from Genesis 1 all the way to Exodus 24. In 75 minutes, I got that far. 
And I talked to him about Christ in Genesis 3.15. I talked about Christ being the, the ark in which we must get, get into to be saved from the wrath of God. We, I just went through the whole thing. And I'm still going, what, what, what are, what's the Lord doing with this guy? And you know, we always, when we're doing these things, we always want people to come to our church. We really do, don't we? Would you, would you, would, I really would love for you to come to my church. Well, he went to some other church. But he came and he told me that he had professed his faith in Christ in front of the church. And, and that was the end of it. Three months of that, and that was the end of it. I saw him in the gym working out again. I knew he was going to church. He told me what was going on, and we didn't talk. Any, I just knew he was going to church. How many times does it take? How many times does it take to talk to somebody, to get the conversation going? You got an Andrew, he introduces you. You got somebody now pouring into you. But how many times until that word becomes powerful and real in that person's soul? Somewhere in all of that, those words became powerful unto his salvation. I don't know when, but he might be able to tell us better. So the Lord works in our lives, but it has to be, we have to be willing and ready to be part of their lives and to converse with them and talk about Jesus when they give us, when we have opportunity. We also learn from this narrative that when we're invited into life with Jesus Christ, we find ourselves inviting Jesus into every part of our lives. I think about Simon Peter saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. How better to say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, than to invite all your sinful tax-collecting friends into your home and Jesus there as well. <laughs> That's a great way to profess your faith in Jesus Christ. Out with the old life, in with the new. Well, let me turn to another passage. If you want to put down this, this in your notes, Luke seven thirty six and following. This is the consider the sinful woman. Simon, a Pharisee, invited Jesus into dining in his home. And it was custom in those days that this, this man had a nice home. And it was the custom in those days for the men to eat around a table. They would lean on their left shoulder. They would eat with their right hand. And their feet would be poking out to the edge of the tent. And there would be room around the tent for people to sit. And they could observe and they could listen, but they were not to speak and they were not to eat. They were just to observe. Well, this woman, there's a woman in town who has a sinful reputation. And so she finds out that Jesus is there. And so what she does is she drops everything. She goes to that house. And here's the first thing she does. She begins to cry a puddle of tears on his feet. And then she begins to kiss his feet. And then she begins to take her hair and wash his feet with those tears. And then she takes from her neck a little perfume bottle and breaks the neck and pours all the perfume on Jesus' feet. This is all happening in front of all these men. <clears throat> What's the story here? What's the backstory? Do you know? You have to read the text to see some, some of the ideas that are going on here. What is the story and the backstory? Well, Simon is thinking to himself as the story proceeds if this man, Jesus, uh, were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. An immoral woman. And so Jesus, knowing his thoughts, he says this to Simon. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replies, say it, teacher. I think one of the translations says, say on, teacher. 
And so Jesus tells Simon the parable of the two debtors. He says there's a money lender who has two debtors, and one of the debtors owes 500 denarii, and one owes 50 denarii. And when both of these men were unable to pay their debts, the money lender came and he said that both of them were forgiven of their debts. And then Jesus looks at Simon and says, Which of these men loved the money lender more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave more. He he forgave more. And then Jesus looks at Simon and says, you have judged rightly. And he turned to the woman and he looks at the woman while he's talking to Simon. And this is what he says. You have treated me with contempt. Now, this is the Mark Wheat translation. I have come into your home and you have treated me with contempt. You have not Washed my feet, customary. Customary, when anybody comes into their home, wash the feet. You have not given me a kiss on the cheek, customary. That's the custom. You have not anointed my head with oil. That's the custom. And from the moment this woman got in this home, she has not ceased to wash my feet with her tears, kiss my feet with her lips, and kiss my feet and pour perfume on them until the whole room smells of this wonderful aroma. What's the, this is the narrative. This is the story. What's the backstory? Well, Jesus gives us a little bit of it from the next words that he says. He says, I say to you, in front of Simon, I say to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus says these words, to her your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When, was, when were these uh, sins forgiven? When did this woman start to love Jesus? When did this woman first put her faith in Jesus? We don't know. But Jesus tells us all these things are true. So it happened back here somewhere. And there is some story that has happened in the past. Maybe it went like this. Maybe it wasn't dramatic. Maybe it wasn't in front of Jesus in a boat. Maybe it wasn't leaving a tax booth and walking away from it. Maybe she just heard a sermon outside a window and walked back to her house and she fell on her face with nobody seeing but God. Maybe she understood for the first time her sins. She understood that as she repented of her sins, the sins were raised off of her shoulders. And now love began to flow out of her heart. Where did, I, I'm, I'm just kind of guessing. This is, this is what Jesus said. Something like this had to happen. We also learn that she is not afraid to stand up and show that affection in front of a lot of folks. She reward, she's rewarded fivefold. He loved her worship, never told her to stop. He loved her worship and used her worship as an example of how he could be loved. He told her her sins were forgiven. He told her she had real faith. He told her she had peace with God. From the backstory, we learn that Jesus' preaching confronts us with our sins. This woman walked away knowing she had sinned. Oh man, that's so hard. Do we really have to tell people they've sinned? Oh yeah, yeah, we have to talk about sin. We, we Maybe we need to learn how to talk about sin in a way that's it's easy for somebody to under a little bit easier for somebody to take in sometimes that might be a skill 
we do have to tell people about their sins. Has Jesus confronted you about your sins? It doesn't have to be in front of the church. You don't have to fall down in front of everybody to do this. You could just go back home. And, um, you know, you might take your tie off. The only one, Sumter and I can take our ties off. But you can go home and you can say, you know, guys, before I eat, I need to go in my room, right? I need to ask the Lord, I need to go in my room. I need to do a little business with Jesus. I need to confess my sins. I need to feel those sins fall off my shoulders. You see, it doesn't have to be in a boat. It doesn't have to be at a tax booth. But it has to happen. We also learn how to worship Jesus. You and I, we don't have the feet to grab hold of. We, don't have, we, don't, we can't cry our tears on His feet and pour perfume on His feet, but we sure can use our lips and praise Him. We sure can give Him the lips of our praise. And we sure can walk around not being afraid to let people know how much we love the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, one more, and it, this, this, this one has to be added. I left out my Rahab story, but this one has to be kept in the sermon. We have to have Timothy to complete this, this sermon. Timothy, consider Timothy, the Apostle Paul's protege. 2 Timothy 1.5, he says this, For I am mindful, Timothy, of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And then the Apostle says a few more words about his, his life growing up. 2 Timothy 3.14 and 15. He says, Continue, Timothy, in the things that you have learned and been convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The apostle says, Continue in the things, not the things you have learned from me, but the things you have learned from your mother and your grandmother. Continuing the Sacred writings that your mother and your grandmother taught you from your youth up. What's his backstory? <laughs> well, if you ask Timothy his backstory, this is what it would be. There's never been a day that I didn't know about Jesus Christ. There's never been a day that I didn't know to believe in Jesus Christ. Timothy's backstory would say would be, you know what? I don't know the day I was, quote, born again, but I do know that I'm repenting of my sins and I'm hungering to live, live a holy life. The story of his life that we have before he meets Paul is he's a godly person. And people went to Paul and told some very nice words and some nice things about Timothy to the apostle. And, Tim, and Timothy is then taken by the apostle to be his intern. From the backstory, we learn somebody has to introduce you to Jesus Christ. In this case, it was mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. Somebody, somebody has to take the time to pour Jesus Christ into us. It can be mother, it can be grandmother, it can be preacher, it can be somebody, but it's got to be somebody. And we learn this, that it, you do not have to know the month or the date or the time of the, or the year of your conversion. What's most important is that you are spiritually alive. Right? There's present life. 
There's repenting and there's believing and there's longing to be with Jesus Christ and there's kissing those feet because there's so much love because you've been forgiven so much. Early in uh, my ministry, I had a group of uh, seventh grade to and I had I had seventh to twelfth grade, but I had some um, nineteen to twenty three year old guys because we had some really pretty girls and they would come and hang out with us. <laughs> some of them got married. But we had this group of about 25 to 30. And one of the young ladies, she came and she would weep. And she wept and she wept and she... I finally figured out that she was weeping about not having assurance of her salvation. And so, at first we wondered if she was like falling in love with the you know the youth minister, you know. And because um, she was calling me from school on pay phones, crying. And so I was talking to her and I didn't feel like anything I said was making a dent and then one day I, her name was Kim she's on the mission field with her husband he, he teaches men how to preach and she, one day I looked at her and I said Kim I said I want you to act like I am a homeless person I want you to act I'm a person I do not know my birth date I do not have a birth certificate but am I alive and she looked at me and think, well, that's silly. Yeah, sure, you're alive. I said, how do you know I'm alive? She says, well, I know you're alive because your eyes are open. You're looking at me. You're sitting up. You're not on the floor dead. There's, there's presence of life. There's breath. There's heart rate. There's all the things that equal life. I said, physical life, yes. I said, well, Kim, you don't have to know the date you were born. You don't have to know that the date you were born again. What you need to see is that you repent of your sins all the time. And you're believing in Jesus Christ. And how many times did you tell me you were reading your Bible in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening? I mean, this child was over the top with spiritual life. And I said, don't you see this? And from that, I mean, that, that, that time after we talked, we didn't have any more tears. No more tears. We had other kinds of tears. We had to work through some other things in our life. But you don't have to know a spiritual date, that it was on a Monday, somebody touched me, what you need to see is that there's spiritual life in you. I've been born again. How do you know? Is the Spirit of God working in you? Well, at the beginning of the sermon, I ask you, do you have a story? Can you think about your backstory? Do you have a story? Is God at work in your life? Are you learning to read your Bible better? I want you to read your Bibles better. Think about these things. Nobody is zapped into the kingdom. <laughs> Everybody, some, every one of us. I read. I read. Herman Bobbick says this. All of us would wish that God had brought us into the kingdom, kicking and screaming, much earlier if He was a coercive God. But He always works in us in His special, sweet way, and He changes our wills and brings us to Jesus Christ in a pleasing way that's pleasing to Him and pleasing to us. Do I have a story? Is God bringing me to Himself? Well, it looks like this. It looks like repenting and believing and holding on to His feet and talking really highly of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to be in Your Word and in Your house today. We thank You for each person who has come. We thank You that, Lord, I know many times we go through weeks where we're, it's, it's kind of a difficult week. Sometimes we miss our Bible readings and sometimes we miss our prayer times. But Lord, we, we get to come to church and literally we get to be drowned by the Word of God. 
We have sung it. We've read it. We've heard it preached to our ears. We've heard words that we've confessed to be true. We've heard words of assurance that we're forgiven. And now we've heard all these different ways that you work in different people's hearts and lives. But so many things are very similar. We all are needing to turn from our sin. We all are needing to put our faith in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that someone who needs to know you this, this morning, I pray that they might find themselves at Jesus' feet, forgiven, and starting that life of love, as even we've read about this lady in Luke chapter 7. Father, help us now as we finish our service, singing to you and walking out of this room, filled with your Spirit and filled with the great knowledge that you love us. Help us to love each other as we leave. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.